I do improv. That's my thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I actually, I really learned to adore like improv comedians. Mm-hmm. I look at the technique. You see these people coming on stage and then they don't know what they're going to say. They've been rehearsing every single part a lot. Mm-hmm. So when the moment comes, they can pull out the trick from their, from their hat and sure. do it. Today I sit down with David Cuartelles, co-founder of Arduino, the widely popular open source electronics development platform. David is not only a brilliant engineer, he's also a gifted educator who has been a lecturer at Malmo University in Sweden since 2000. He's written several books on programming and travels internationally to speak to the value of open source hardware and STEAM education. Today we talk all about the importance of education and how he developed his unique and effective teaching style. We'll also discuss the difficulties in distilling down complex ideas and how improv can make you a better communicator. Here's my conversation with David Cuartelles. We live in a time where design and technology touch every aspect of our lives. But where did it all come from? Who designed it? How was it built and brought to market? What will it look like in a year? Two years? A hundred years? From the phones and smartwatches that help us in our day-to-day to the cutting-edge spaceships and 3D printers that are leading us into the future, modern design is constantly shaping the way we work, communicate, problem-solve, and play. And every new design, big or small, starts with an idea and a bill of materials. I'm Magenta Strongheart, and this is The Bomb, where we talk to leading innovators in the tech world and celebrate the transformational power of design. Have you been on your partner's podcast? No. <laughs> oh, it's for women, technically, for right? Women. Sorry, I forgot. It's for I, women I, musicians I specifically. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, no, Laura's podcast is, mm-hmm. is actually really well attended. Nice. And, uh, I should check it out. I think I'm just very lucky of, of being able of supporting her. Mm-hmm. It's like she started um, three years ago, more or less. Like she was like, I really have to do something because she was the main designer of a book about mm-hmm. the history of, of electronic music in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's awesome. And and uh, what that she realized it was very conflicted because there were only like two women or something in the book. Mm-hmm. And, and as she was making the layout, she was talking to the researcher that was uh, the, the author of the book. And and she realized that he, it's not he was intentionally mm-hmm. leaving people out, but he was not really giving their importance to the, the people and to the things that have been happening. Mm-hmm because she was very active doing visuals at concerts and sometimes playing herself. Oh, awesome. So she knew there were other women, but yeah. they didn't show there. And and so she was she spent years being frustrated about it until she said like, okay, I have to do something about it. I will start a podcast where I will contact people that I know and I will tell their story or even better, I will let them tell their own stories. So I will, she doesn't have like a set frame of questions mm-hmm. or like, um, and so she creates a very intimate kind of atmosphere where they shoot for about an hour and they spend one hour listening to music. And oh, that's th- so cool. It's, it's kind of like a radio show too. Yeah, it's, it's no a radio way, show. Yeah. And, and she really, she makes it live now. And in the beginning, she was making it live, but the technology didn't really help. And we figured out a better setup, but then she decided to pre-record the programs because also there is a problem because people are typically in Latin America. So the, the, the time is bad because mm-hmm. she's yeah. on the air on Thursdays. And this means that people are maybe like having lunch and then she, and they might not be at the right place to, have this kind of intimacy you need for the call, right? Sure. So she was recording, but then a lot of these people are actually abroad. And that's one of the points, right? Like in order to produce electronic experimental music or experimental music in general, women 
need to leave the country. Mm-hmm. So so she can catch up with them like either in the States, in Canada, in Germany, Italy, France, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so yeah, so it's it's very interesting, and uh, she really puts a lot of work in it. Like she makes like new covers for each chapter. She writes like a s- short story about the person, and then she's in the making of a book. Hopefully, I mean she's pitching now the project, the project and stuff. So hopefully, mm-hmm. it will become something very big. Cool, that's yeah. really awesome. I definitely want to check it out. And I wonder <laughs> if um, I know a friend of mine in LA. Um, since you said it is kind of global, I don't mm. know if she would qualify exactly but she makes electronic music and um she's mexican yeah. and uh, those, those are the two important factors okay <laughs> so that she qualifies. uh i'm trying to find her but she actually made the um our like jingle for the podcast so yeah. we recruited her to do that which is really below her talent level mm-hmm. but she was nice enough to do it for us um so if you want to send me the contact yeah i will send it to laura and then okay, she perfect. will no, I mean, I'll definitely find it. Her the, name's Anna. Yeah. But um I'll send it over. So the right now the setup that Laura has is like a rode like a road like a mixer board that's special for high mix minus. So you can have mm-hmm. like the live calls and play the music back to the person that is being interviewed okay. and so on. Nice. So it's a it's a pretty like rough setup because he also has to stream against a server that is in Mexico. Oh, wow. And then from there, it's like stream from a website. There is a Nopal or Radio Nopal, mm-hmm. which is uh, the radio. Oh, so it does go on like a radio show. That's yeah, cool. it goes like a radio okay, show great. on a website Yeah, that where there is a lot of other people that are doing this. So it's, it's a radio collective uh, with, I think it's like 20-something programs. And there's they're trying to fill in the full programming for 24 hours, uh, seven days a week. Wow. So it's, yeah, uh, a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. And does so, she do it weekly? No, she does by she does by weekly right now. Okay. I mean, making it weekly is also a problem for the family. <laughs> it's so much work. <laughs> because when- it's a lot of work for her. I mean, she, she actually works one day a week with this mm-hmm. and four days a week as her normal work. Okay, yeah. Uh, so she actually went down in her working hours to be able to do in the show. Well, that's good that she's able to do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Also because she was very, she's very serious about it. So mm-hmm. she has a, she's taking the opportunity and uh, her salary is really well. So yeah. it, it allows her to really like uh, do it. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When we first started this podcast, um, the producer was like, you really need to do it weekly because in the podcast world, like it's just you're going to it's going to help it grow. Like Mm -hmm. you can't do it monthly or whatever, which would have been my preference at the beginning Mm because I'm like, well, I have a full time job. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But um, it's also really fun because it's like it's one of my favorite parts of my job because I get to have interesting conversations with interesting Mm -hmm. people, you know, and so I don't want to lose out on that. So it's been worth it to do it weekly. But sometimes it's so stressful because it's like you know we're chasing the we try to get them ahead of the season starting like Mm. when we started this year so it started a year and a half ago now and when we first started um we were maybe like 10 episodes ahead in the first season and that was decent Mm. but then this year i was like i really want to get further ahead so i don't want to stress the whole time we had maybe 15 it wasn't a ton Mm. and then um, once we got started, it just caught up so quickly, the actual, mm. you know, live week. I think now we're like four weeks ahead, which is decent, <laughs> but, um, it's a constant, yeah. uh, no, yeah, I, I know, I know how it is. I, I was making a podcast with a friend until, until he got his kid mm-hmm. and, uh, we will, I mean, we, we, we were making like tech news for makers in Spanish. And so we were collecting the news for the, of the week. And, uh, we will get hundreds of followers, like to listen to it live. So once we. We did it while driving a car to an event, uh, like live from the car and things like this, like really crazy. We did a lot of things. 
but um, um, it requires a lot of commitment. And, yeah, exactly. and some things like come along in life and if actually it's not anything you actually are paid for, it becomes a problem because you have no excuse to don't do the other thing that actually pays your working yes. hours. <laughs> exactly. So. You need that accountability piece. Yeah. yeah. So I am lucky it's part of my job, but <laughs> it was an add-on to a full-time job I already had. <laughs> so, you know, it's all about prioritizing, mm. um, which is actually a nice segue to one of the questions I wanted to ask you okay. because you do, I mean, even in the short time we spent together, mm. I can see you do a lot. You really mm -hmm. manage so many different projects, different initiatives. You have, you know, a hand in a lot of things going on. And as you mentioned yesterday, mm -hmm. you're someone that when people work with, they want to invite you back to do more mm -hmm. pretty often, right? So how do you manage your time and kind of select which projects you're really interested in working mm -hmm. on or going to prioritize what commitments that you're going to yeah, focus on? That's good. I, I don't necessarily prioritize projects based on the outcome. So um, by outcome, I mean either economic or coverage. Some people are very strategic and they think like, oh, I have to do this project because instead of 100 people see me, will be 1,000 people see me. Instead of making $100, I will make $10,000, you mm -hmm. know? So that, that's never been my goal. I, I do projects that I know I'm gonna make at a loss just because I find them interesting. I want to learn about what it means. And uh, sometimes I make projects with just to people because they need it and don't care that nobody else will see it. They will not be published anywhere. So uh, I typically decide, not necessarily based on feeling, but I think based on the need. And, and for example, when I decided to commit to Arduino, I was on my way to have like a decent career as an academic and media artist. And and uh, even though I was starting as a media artist, I was in that phase where things had really start, were starting to click. Mm -hmm. Like I hadn't really found my expression yet but through electronics i was coming to something that really felt like okay i'm i'm you know 10 months away of an exhibition mm -hmm. like we really have something, something that will work yeah. yeah but then i realized like oh my god this arduino thing is, looks like so much more important like i can help people doing things so instead of like thinking about my own career as a media artist i thought like but well, i can help people with this and and um, mm -hmm. so my way of of waiting what was more important was based on who would benefit from it. Um, like, you know, I thought like, yeah, media art can satisfy my ego, but this thing can help people learn. So what's best? Mm -hmm. And then I understood if I do this properly, I cannot do this other thing properly. It doesn't really compute. It's, there's not enough time in a day to do both things. So I was... While, while I work really hard and sometimes I, I could work like uh, three weeks, weekends included, uh, 20, 20 hours a day and sleeping for hours, I have done it. At the same time, when I rest, I really rest. Mm -hmm. And I shut everything down and I disconnect and I, I'm there for my family and my friends and whatnot. So so for that reason, I think uh, when I choose, I also choose things that I, I know I can accomplish. Which is hard to say because in design, nothing is ever done. You yes, know? But, <laughs> <laughs> right. So, you will take all the time that you're given to yeah. do something. I think with when it comes to design or mm -hmm. art or creating something. Um, yeah, I remember uh, a professor I used to have always saying, "Make the time you have enough time." But mm -hmm. it's like you will always fill all the time that you're given for yeah. something until the final deadline, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. Like you said, the the work can sometimes never be done. But that's really interesting. I think that. Um, like you said, that's a hard decision for a lot of people to make, to mm. choose something, um, you know, that's maybe it's, it has to do with the bigger picture and mm. how it's going to make 
more of an impact rather than, like you said, kind of maybe satisfying your ego or something mm. that you were really passionate about yeah. in the moment. I mean, that's a really hard trade-off to make. Do yeah. you think since um, since Arduino you know, has been more established, have you been able to give back to the media art side of things personally, or have you really kind of let is, it go? And Yeah, I, I definitely let it go. I, I wouldn't say I lost interest. I'm very interested. I, I like to to go to the venues and see the exhibitions and talk to people and and I have friends that that stayed there and they continue to do things there and I keep on meeting new people that are doing crazy things and amazing work mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time it's a it's a world that requires a huge effort um you have to build the contacts you have to be at the galleries you have to make something that is interesting and, and is in the political discourse of the moment that people can really relate to. And with media art, it's even more complicated because uh, it's not the traditional art in the sense that even though technology, the idea that technology has been with us for a long time, people don't necessarily understand it as a way to express, let's say, the same thing you will do express with a sculpture or a painting. Mm -hmm. So, so it, it is complicated, and I really, I really admire people that have been devoted to this and have been putting effort and on that have been getting good results because it's really hard. Definitely. Um, so yeah, to the question is like, yeah, it would be really hard for me to go back. Uh, also because I, the last 20 years, uh, well, since I started Arduino 15 years, I specialized very much in the pedagogics of technology. Like, like uh, maybe my painting is that I can make a sketch of a one day workshop, a three days workshop, a five days workshop, and I can prepare it in a couple of hours, you know? Exactly. So, so that's my skill. It has become my skill, and I I learned to live with that and accept that. You know, it's a, and I don't see it like as as a loss. I see it as like I made a conscious choice, and I'm glad yeah. with the choice I made. No, I can appreciate that because I feel similarly sometimes with the work that I do. Um, you know, I thought when I graduated I was going to be doing furniture design full time. <laughs> like that was the dream make furniture, and you know maybe I'll do it someday. But I've found through this role, you know that. I really like um, learning about how to make things, right? Like mm. being in the shop, using the tools and learning from others, how they're innovating with these tools, with mm. what they're creating, having these conversations with people who are really passionate about the work they do, and then organizing community events and being mm. able to spread kind of access to technology or to design thinking or to these different, you know, focuses that Design Lab has. And in the way, yeah, I, I feel like that's my art practice now, you know, mm -hmm. like that's um, the way that I can be creative and um, yeah, make something in collaboration with others that feels uh, impactful. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, yeah, something that a lot of people go through. And so a big focus um, of yours, in addition to Arduino, is what you do in education. Mm -hmm. You are an incredible educator, not only, I think, at the university level, which I've been learning more about since we met yesterday, um, but even beyond to all of the work that you do across the world through these workshops, mm -hmm. through um, working with different schools, nonprofits, government groups all around. And so I would love to hear just why you think it sounds like maybe a basic question, but why <laughs> is education important? What do you think it really mm -hmm. um, does for for yeah. students? You know, so well, I am. Um, I think I should say first of all, I always always wanted to be a teacher. That was something that was in on my plate forever. Like when I was a student at the university, I realized that some of the teachers I had were amazing in transmitting very complex concepts. I had this teacher that 
who was working with, it's called crayons in English, right? And the, on a blackboard. Mm -hmm. he could, or chalk. Or chalk, yeah. Mm -hmm. he, so, he, so he had like, he could paint it, he could paint like uh, electromagnetic fields with chalk in five colors. Wow. And uh, you would look at it, it was like um, crazy. It was impossible to copy that well on a paper. Mm -hmm. um, and this guy would come and he would prepare his class uh, uh, and come, he had really prepared the thing so he could make it in his two hours. Like he knew exactly what he was gonna say from the beginning to the end. And it's like a performance. And if you think about it, like a traditional good teacher uh, is kind of like, is a performer. It's like he comes, makes a concert, and probably some years he has a better concert, some years has a worse concert because whatever reason, but he has been rehearsing a lot. He's been doing it year after year and knows what he wants to say and what's the joke when he needs to crack the exact mm -hmm. joke. Like, you know, and and um, and I really admired it. And I was like, this is what I want to be. I dreamed like, this is what I want to be. Like, uh, you know, it's like, yeah, I want to do technology. I want technology to end up in everybody's pockets. But for real, when I've done the technology, I want to be able to sit in a class with 100 people and explaining them how they can do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And um, so when I was when I was graduating from my my master's in the in the old in the old study system in Spain, you will go straight for a master's. Uh, so when I finished my master's, um, I say my I told my teacher, so I really want to run for a PhD. I want to be a teacher. I told me like, well, you know what? Go into the market, work for three years, and then you think about it. And because I'm I'm a very restless person, like like I I can do a lot of stuff and I can achieve a lot of things in parallel. And they thought like, yeah, you will not last two days doing this thing. <laughs> they didn't want to tell this to me directly, but I could see in their eyes they were really thinking like that. And I was like, well, I cannot really start a PhD with without their without their blessings. Mm -hmm. So I should at least try to do what do they're the telling track. me to do, mm -hmm. right? So I went into the market and I went to my first job and I lasted twelve months exactly. And I went to my second job, I lasted nine months. And and it, then I got offered to come to Sweden to become a teacher when I was 24. Wow. And I was like, okay, this is it. Mm -hmm. And so I relocated here. And suddenly I realized how amazingly hard it is to run those classes that these guys were running. Okay, I was asked to teach programming to art and design students. Nobody had been doing this before. There were no books about it. So I had to invent everything from scratch. There were some guys, like the guys from the processing project that had been doing this before at, at MIT that had been experimenting with this, but I was not aware of that, you know, I had like nowhere, no place where to pull from and, and unveil the secret and, oh, this is the, mm -hmm. the secret no, book that will help me do anything. pretty much starting from yeah. scratch. You were writing the book. Yeah, yeah. So way. I was teaching yeah. them Java and um, which I was kind of like mandatory from the school. They, uh, they asked me to teach them this thing. It's the most academic language right now and so on. And and uh and it was really hard i have to tell you like but i very like in the beginning i, I mean I, I was forced or not forced i was asked to start, te start teaching like the week after i arrived wow so i had to be creating the course as i in was running time, the course yeah yeah because i was gonna ask i loved the analogy of the you know the way someone teaches mm. to a performance giving a performance and i think that's that's really accurate mm. and so i was gonna say do you you know, rehearse your courses when you teach them, but for this one, you didn't have any time no, to prepare it. Sounds like I, I learn. I do, I do improv. That's my thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I actually I really learned to adore like improv, improv uh, comedians mm -hmm. because, but it's but it's 
my my wife and my kid they think is because I like really bad comedian artists, but it's it's not for that reason. I I look at the technique. You I, respect that they can get yeah, up yeah, there yeah. and do it on the fly. It's amazing. It's amazing things like you you see these people coming on stage and then they don't know what they're gonna say. They've been rehearsing every single part a lot. Mm-hmm. So when the moment comes, they can pull out the trick from their from their hat and sure. do it. But so what I do is I rehearse things, I, but I, those, I, I don't stand at my place like cracking the joke and laughing <laughs> at myself. What I do is that I I I do a lot of like slideshows and I, I know kind of like the storyline on how to reach a complex thing and I, mm-hmm. So I rehearsed the story in telling that very complex thing and and I tried once with a group of students and if it doesn't really work properly, I fix it. You can iterate, yeah. I, I iterate exactly and, and I make it better. And and of course some some classes I've done it so many times. At some point I was teaching the basic Arduino introduction workshop like three or four times per term. Wow. So I I was once making a joke to a professor emeritus Pelin, which is one of the founders of the Malmo University. Uh I was like asking him, like, how many times do you teach this class? Uh, it's on a certain topic that he he's really excellent at teaching. So like, like once every year, like, well, I'm teaching the Arduino workshop like three or four times per term. So technically, I could retire by the time I'm like 47 <laughs> if if I have to account the amount of that you will make your lecture mm-hmm, in comparison exactly. to the I make my lecture, right? You're like I've completed the 10,000 hours. Yeah, I, I know. I'm an expert now. <laughs> I'm definitely an expert in that. So. But I still remember when, when I designed the first Arduino workshop, that was like so intense because like I was like, we made the first Arduino boards and they were based on the teaching we had done until then, but we had never really been teaching this to anybody. Mm-hmm. And and uh, so we're gonna teach this workshop in 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 Spain uh, at an art center uh, that doesn't exist any longer called Media Lab Madrid. Okay. And um, they told me, you're gonna have 30 students. So I was like, okay, I need to have a staff for 30 people. So which are like there, I remember myself thinking like, okay, what are I gonna teach them? Like, I'm gonna teach them interaction concepts or I'm gonna teach them like low level technology or, and it's a mix of both. It's not exactly mm-hmm. one thing or the other. So you really need to figure out what is I'm gonna tell them so you can capture their attention so I can work with them for five days. And that was really hard. So, so I planned like the first three days is gonna be like introduction to stuff. Mm-hmm. So that the fourth and fifth day they can build a project. So that kind of like set the ground for how these workshops had to be. And and the funny thing is I started with 30, on the second day there were 35. And people the rumor was spraying among the artists in the city and more and more people were coming. So the wow. fourth day there were like 58 people. Oh my God. And you're like, I only and, prepared for 30. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, no. But they, they were they were teaming up. Like people were okay, grouping nice. up and and they were That's even work, cooler. working yeah. together around one single board and one laptop and yeah. then building something together. That's awesome. And, and then is when uh, Gerfried Stoker came by from Ars Electronica and he, he was, because he had really well relationship with the, with the directors of the art center. And he asked like, oh, this workshop is interesting. For, for how, is it the first day? Because there's a lot of people. And the guy said like, no, it's the last day. <laughs> and uh, this been more people coming every day. Mm-hmm. And, and he was in shock, like, oh, how can you make a workshop where like so many people actually joins? Yeah. So he asked me and then uh, that actually brought me to like curate Ars Electronica's 2006 workshop area. And oh, I invited wow. a whole bunch of people to come. And I said, well, I, w- I will do it with just a condition. You have to give me free tickets for 300 people. And they were like, what? Yeah, I want people to to apply to come to the workshop and it should be for free for them. Mm-hmm. So we set like a, like a sleeping hall in a basketball court 
<laughs> people came from all over the world. They slept for free in this court and they came to the workshops for free. So we had like, it was my piece was this huge workshop, people producing stuff yeah. on the fly. And it was, it was just amazing. Like, um, yeah, so, so for me, that was like, it's my biggest contribution to, <laughs> to media art is a, a workshop of people working. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? that, that's my piece. Where you gave them free room and board too along the way. Yeah. No, that's really incredible. And I think I love the idea. I have a million follow-up questions, but I'll try to keep it short and sweet. <laughs> but I love the, um, the idea that the workshop was contagious. Like the word was spreading quickly for mm. more people to come because it was that engaging and exciting to folks. And mm. that's what I think any, you know, um, teacher or workshop facilitator dreams of, you know, being able to do that. And I think also what you're saying about balancing the the technical and kind of the con con more conceptual side of mm -hmm. some of these, um, these skills or these lessons that you're teaching, it sounds like similar to even what we were discussing yesterday with some of the courses you teach now with the interaction students mm -hmm. at um, interaction design students at Malmo, where it's this balance of giving them the the foundational tools and skill sets, mm -hmm. but also you want like a challenging concept or something that draws them in, mm -hmm. whether it's the research that they're focused on or how they're going to apply it to really, yeah. you know, get them to run with it, right? Just if you look at it, this is the, I think it's a secret sauce. Like I've been analyzing how different master courses and so on, um, how they run for so many years so successfully. For example, ITP has been there since the seventies. They started giving the students like the first Betacam cameras and they would go out on the streets filming and stuff like this. Well, I don't know if it were Betacam or, or VHS. I think it was Betacam. Mm -hmm. That's not relevant, but yes. they give students with cameras. Mm -hmm. uh, or um, like RCA, that they are all the time looking at the latest trend in design to remain relevant. So the students apply, but they don't know exactly what they will work with next year. And suddenly they get topics such as like uh, biomaterials or animal superpowers well, or, yeah. you know. Uh, it's a similar thing with goldsmiths and stuff like that. So I've, I've been always asking myself, like, okay, what is that we can do, let's say, in more constrained or, or more set educational systems so we can reach a similar level of engagement? So, so what it is that we can do, right? And because that's a, that's a, that's that's my framework. I, I work at a public university in Sweden. I'm a public officer. So, so what is that I can do? to engage people in this education, also that the education becomes relevant or remains relevant because it's been very relevant the last mm -hmm. 20 years. And students keep on coming and keep on applying and they keep on thinking that they learn something and they go out to get jobs or invent jobs and they make new crazy things mm -hmm. or important things, not just exactly. crazy. Um, I have <laughs> crazy people that important. Make, uh, <laughs> yeah, crazily important. Just yes, to like, exactly. let's make it into an adverb, to make it more important. <laughs> yeah, no, but, but it's like, so, I, I think it's very important to to keep on analyzing, analyzing what is that the others are doing and and try to make it better, but not from a competition perspective, more from a more like from a prototyping perspective. Yeah, yeah. It's like I think improving the work from the others should be like a by default model. Mm -hmm. Like why do I why do I go to I don't know Thingiverse and replicate a play from somebody? Uh okay, I need this exact same thing to do this. But if I really want to make a better education system, I should teach people how to get that and make it better. Mm -hmm. So really challenge it and think. Continue to build off of yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, because otherwise you don't learn anything. Yeah. You just learn to copy and that's okay, that's interesting. That could get you a job, but <laughs> might not solve the future, right? Yes. And our goal as academics should be make better designers, make better engineers, help make a better future. That should be like the underlying super clear goal.
Once you I understand that, that <laughs> <laughs> we can make t-shirts. <laughs> oh, yeah. Give me my 10%. <laughs> yes, exactly. I'll just sell them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a perfect segue actually to something I wanted to ask you around. Mm. What do you think is the responsibility of designers and engineers to humanity, to one another, to people, you know, in the world? Mm. Well, um, as I said, I, I think the basic responsibility is to is to make the world a better place in whatever form. And I mean, that sounds very generic, but I think if you use that every time you, you ask yourself whether you should make something, I think it will really help you answer the question. Yeah, if you're using that as like your compass or your yeah. North Star. Yeah, if, if I said like, oh, if I make this thing, will, the, will this place be better? Or will this create a conflict among people? Or will this be more polluting or... But you also have to have like a the thought that goes a bit beyond the simple yes no question. So maybe the question is not whether it is polluting today, but will it be polluting in ten years time? Exactly. Yeah. Or even if it's polluting today, but will it help reduce pollution in five years when this thing is fully implemented? So, mm -hmm. so you have to really learn to make that math on on the implication of things in the short term and in the long term because you also need to pitch them, and I think. Um, um, many engineers, especially, and some designers as well, they are forgetting about the importance of language and, and how much it matters to be able of communicating what you do and, and explain others and engage others in, in good things. Um, but also I think the other problem is that sometimes the message becomes very shallow and very superficial. Mm -hmm. So, so if I have to tell designers and students, uh, how to collaborate or how to make better things, I will tell them. First of all, look at the matter, like give it a thought, think about the possible implications, think long-term, and then on top of that, uh, uh, think about whether it's actually feasible uh, with what you have. The practicality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because sometimes we want to do everything and then we can't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then it's like, who are you really helping if it's not, yeah. if you can't really actualize it or yeah, yeah. it can't uh, be functional? And it's going to be applied to a lot of things. It's like yeah. when students <laughs> come and say like, oh yeah, I have this idea. I want to make 10,000 of this and I'm going to put it in a wall. It's like, okay, you want to 3D print 10,000 of this. It's going to take you about 24 years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? So it's like, like think let's about think it. this through. Yeah. Our school has four printers, <laughs> you know. Do the math. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. I think that's, that's such an important point to make you know not only the practicality but like you said the long-term implications so not only short-term long-term and how it's really going to fit into whatever existing ecosystem mm -hmm. you know that there is around whatever the topic or application is and i love what you said about communication and also that the kind of checking if it's getting shallow essentially because if you're trying to market it or sell it or make people believe in it, it's hard to, yeah. like you said, avoid it becoming shallow or top level or whatnot. But again, if you're really focused on the the impact and the long-term effects and things, mm. then I think that's a way to kind of yeah. also combat there's the, that. There's the classic, classic risk of a TED talk, right? Where you have to look for a very synthetic message that will help people understand very quickly that this is gonna be better. But the mm -hmm. problem is that when you do that exercise, you also remove it waters it down yeah you, know, you remove the com the complexity or by removing the complexity you sometimes are removing the the side effects mm -hmm. and and then people don't make informed decisions about some stuff because they just don't have the full picture yeah. and i think that's something we have to be very aware of and then we have to help people really 
You know, we have to tell them, no, no, this is great, but wait, 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 wait a second, mm-hmm. you know, look at <laughs> look these four points. Deeper. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. This might happen. This might happen. This might happen. So are we all good that if we do this, this might happen? Yeah. Um, and I think when, when you work with, I, I think that there's also about design methodologies. Like if you work with user-centered design is one thing, but if you work with participatory design or, or like I work with participatory activist research where you engage with people and you sometimes even in, like bring in your own concepts to the table, right? Then, then, um, then it's then it's even more important to to tell everybody like, okay, we're making this decision together. It's not just me. So, mm-hmm. so we need to agree that we're making this because the moment we press on, of course, we can stop it, but the the farther we go in the process, the bigger the consequences for good and for bad. Mm-hmm. So, I think it's very important to keep that in mind. So, I think. Actually, engineers they also need to be aware of this methodology because designers are more and more aware of this. So I think we we need to also bring these methodologies into engineering and and remind people about the importance, and also remind engineers to scratch beyond the surface. Yes. <laughs> no, but I, I mean I was I'm a trained engineer and I have a PhD in design and and uh, and I realized, or I realized some years ago when looking back that. Some of these ideas that we were getting in engineering about how society was involved in the process of building things were extremely naive because we we are going very deep at the technical and um, on the physics and the math of things. And that requires such an exercise of abstraction that you get very disconnected from reality in a sense. Right. Um and and I'm not saying people shouldn't do it because of abstraction. I think they should totally do it because otherwise technology and, and, and science will not advance. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, when you come back, you need to make another exercise yeah. of, you know, as we say in Spanish, landing yourself, mm-hmm. like like getting closer to the ground and, and yeah. looking around and understanding like um, uh, what it means to collaborate with people. Yeah, and, where it fits in. Yeah, and, and not be so superficial. Mm-hmm. And you know when this discussion about humanities versus technology, that they don't understand each other? And my my answer to that question is that the depth of the discourse is very different in both fronts. Mm-hmm. So some people here don't respect the others because they're they're very superficial, and some people here don't respect the others because they don't understand the abstraction. Mm-hmm. And at the end, they're just discussing about two different metaphors. Right. You know, so it's very interesting. Absolutely. I think it's so cool that you made that point because that's something <laughs> we talk about a lot with the community at Design Lab and even just Giovanni and I, you know, mm. um, in what the work that we do is this kind of like, it comes back to communication in a way, but how often between like, for example, these are some of the main groups we work with between designers, engineers, and business people. Mm-hmm. They can be talking about the same thing, but they're using whole different uh, vocabulary, language, mm-hmm. and their perspective or how they're framing it because of what their focus is or how they've been trained or how they've been mm-hmm. educated in that discipline makes it feel like totally alienating sometimes to the other mm-hmm. parties. Um, but sometimes it's really not as as um, different as people might think and mm-hmm. kind of like bridging those um, worlds, I think is so important to be able to go deeper into these conversations, like mm. you're saying, and actually be able to try to understand one another better yeah. in order to be able to collaborate yeah. effectively. Uh, and some spaces are really making a good job at this. For example, historically CERN has been very good at, at bringing the collaboration between artists and, and the scientific community, mm-hmm. right? Or uh, there was this experiments in the 60s, 70s, the Imagineering experiments, uh, uh, dealing between art and technology, we're also pretty good at, at bridging this. But the problem is that um, these things are happening as as uh, unique actions on time. Right. Know? 
and and uh, even within the art field, people that are working with digital technology are seen as aliens sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and in the other way around, the other way around, it's like if a technologist looks at the at art, um, it's very many times is looking at art as a consumer and as a producer, mm-hmm. and and that makes that the the art tools, for example, are very limited or very exclusive or very niche. Yeah, and and I think. I think we need to recognize the effort of people that are trying to make that different. As I mentioned earlier, people in the processing community, I think that's a really good example. Mm-hmm. But if you look at sound, for example, I think like a very healthy approach is the one from Sonic Pi, uh, where they are making, or is a, is a, a person making <laughs> a software that is used by, by students all over the world to learn about the importance of coding in sound production. Mm-hmm. Uh, or of course, Pure Data, right? Uh, it was a very political software that, that yes. forces like all of the source code to be released. Mm-hmm. in the open people to understand how to handle sound at low level with a graphical user interface, which is a metaphor of programming that allows people to really do things in a different way. So so I think we need to continue developing these metaphors further. I think that's part of the of the job of the actually what I teach, which is interaction design. So mm-hmm. it's, it's about developing metaphors for interacting with machines, really. So so I think uh that's a, a very important aspect. Anyway, I could talk about this for a half, I know, we could, we could so go on and on. I will, I will try to I stop here. Say, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I could listen to it for hours. We're going to take a quick break. When we're back, we'll talk more about the link between scientists and artists. Plus, David talks about his journey to co-founding Arduino and the Catch-22 in open source. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to The Bomb. I'm Magenta Strongheart. I'm here with David Cuartieyes, not only the co-founder of Arduino, but also a highly ambitious educator. Let's get back to this conversation. You know, we talked a little bit about the differences and some of the challenges in between, but also so many of the people that I know personally Mm. who are artists are very, they're also very technically inclined or they're Mm. doing processes that are very parallel to processes used in engineering or scientific research. Mm. They're researching a concept, they're prototyping, they're iterating, they're developing, they Mm. have to defend their concept, they have to communicate it, Mm. improve it, et cetera, right? And I think there's a lot of, um, you know, engineers that I meet that are very interdisciplinary. You know, they have a a music side or oftentimes Mm. I think it comes out as like a hobby, quote unquote, or something, right? But Mm. they're really involved in it in the evenings or in their free time. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to think, even I think in like with music, we we used to do this program at Design Lab called Modular Manifestation All Around Modular Synth um, Mm. Communities. And they're super, you know, involved in making their tools, essentially making their instruments and hacking their instruments and improving them and whatnot. Mm. So I think that sometimes... Um, you know, it's not, yeah, sometimes these worlds are individuals, I guess, within these worlds are not so different after all, you know, like there mm. is a lot of crossover, I think. And, and that, yeah, makes me hopeful about where it's all going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, but I think that the issue is also that 
these are things that are really hard to standardize because if you standardize them, then they lose. They lose the magic. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's 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 a real issue, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, is that the discussion, for example, of open source art is something that I've been facing many many times, mm-hmm. and uh, because when we started with Arduino, for example, there were some like the early artists like jumping on it. They were interested not just in the technology doing things, but also in the open source aspect behind it. So a bunch of people started to like publish the art as open source because they distinguish or they, they could separate between like the art and the technique to make it happen. Mm-hmm. For example, there's this artist called Daniel Palacios that make, makes this uh, kind of environmental pieces. He captures data from the environment somehow, whether it's sound or whether it's people in a room or whatever it is, and he makes a manifestation of it, whether it is something moving or whether it's something like being etched on a piece of wood or so some like sort this. of physical. Yeah, so, exactly. So it was a physical manifestation of data captured, yeah. whether in real time or over over a longitudinal period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he publishes all of the blueprints of everything completely open source for people to replicate if they want to. Mm-hmm. Um, be, but because he he is working in such a niche aspect and he's like he's so unique, everybody is gonna know are gonna know. Okay, this guy made it it's first. It's his, yeah, of course. Exactly, yeah. Does he ever integrate? The work of others building off of it into his pieces I mean, later on. He he does integrate the software in his pieces, but I don't think many people are really like taking his mm-hmm. job and replicating it because it because it's special what he does. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. unique. He, he was he was also very lucky. Like his first piece actually got two prizes, was exhibited at the Pe- uh, Beijing Olympics, okay. um, wow. and stuff like that. Yeah. So he's been very lucky when it comes to his production and, and his exposure. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think. Um, I think like other people are very really aware of the fact that maybe sharing the blueprints when you're not that well known might be a problem because might be some people might try to use it yes. and so on. So that, that's a classic debate. That's a big thing that comes up yeah. with a lot of our discussions yeah. around open source, of course. Especially we were talking about this yesterday with designers mm-hmm. being taught a lot of times, you know, in school traditionally to protect their work and, you know, mm-hmm. um, be wary of copies and things like that, mm-hmm. or people knocking things off. Um, but it's also like, especially with the the world of social media and all these things mm-hmm. these days, you can't keep everything a secret forever, you know, and oftentimes that can hinder the project sometimes uh, down the line. Yeah, no, I, I think there's a, there's a discussion ongoing. Well, Another of my facets that we were speaking about. <laughs> we'll have to do a, yeah. a follow-up to all of these. <laughs> yeah, 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 I know. But for example, I was in a workshop a couple of weeks ago with uh, Open Futures Foundation uh, that is looking at what are the possibilities of open source in the future. And there were people from like the Mozilla Foundation, there were people mm-hmm. from uh, Wikimedia Foundation, um, uh, people like a professor from uh, art school in Rotterdam, and um, the president of the Goteo Foundation, which is a foundation that works with like crowdsourcing community projects and so on in, in Spain and Latin America, and a lot of other actors. And and basically the discussion here was, well, the commons, as in creative commons, as in open source software, right. as in uh, open source hardware or free hardware and free software and so on, these things are, uh, of course, very easy to follow by first world, uh, mm-hmm. you know, white, whatever, whatever. Privileged individuals, exactly. yeah. While if you are in a small community somewhere where this really makes a difference between life and death, um, 
protecting it is more important. Mm -hmm. So so there's a whole discussion about why should, for example, this indigenous community in the Amazonas share on Wikipedia Mm -hmm. anything about themselves because the whole point for them is being secret right <laughs> you know but that being secret at the same time might mean that they might disappear but they could also disappear if they are being seen mm -hmm. so, so catch 22 exactly yeah. so so when those situations happen then it's about the individuals or the collectives deciding by themselves right so so we also have to be very mindful and and, and careful of this like why and when should we open source? And and I'm a strong defender of open sourcing, but of course, again, I'm in a really luxurious situation. Mm -hmm. My job is paid in advance. Yeah. So you but, can afford to be exactly. Open. At the same time, uh, it's a playground where people could come and could say, like, hey, I'm making this, um, but I'm also available for hire. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? So it's so, so it's an interesting, it's an interesting place. We have created a place that allows for other forms to emerge than the traditional yeah. uh, way of building com corporations right. and interactions. Platform, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, fun fact, hmm. when you we were talking about the data visualization um, artist, the first time I used Arduino was actually in an art and technology course uh, mm -hmm. in my school in college in my industrial design program. And it was for a data visualization course. We were working with another school, Northwestern University, uh, with their engineering students and then our art and design and technology students mm -hmm. and putting together these exhibitions on um, public data that was like city metrics data around mm -hmm. commuting and bicycle usage and power and all these things. Um, but yeah, I just remembered, I was like, that's the <laughs> first time I used Arduino. I was gonna rewind a little bit um, and ask, you said you were invited to be a professor in Sweden when you were 24. Mm. And how uh, how long after that did you then found Arduino? Okay, yeah, so I came here, first First time I came here was in 1999. And the reason why I came was to actually implement uh, an art project from a couple of artists called um, Christian Lemmers and Mikkel Quium, a German-Danish duo. And they they made a eight hours long movie of James Joyce's uh, Finnegan's Wake, and they wanted to put this on the web, and everybody knew this is impossible to put on the web. Like in 1999, the web wasn't ready for an eight hours long movie, <laughs> and um, but but their movie had different manifestations. It was being projected on a triptych on a museum. Um, they had a catalog, and then they wanted to have this something on the web, and the something on the web is what I did. Mm -hmm. So together with with uh, Christopher Gansing, a friend of mine, and Elizabeth Nielsen, who was producing, or they were co-producing the thing, they they hired me to to be um, the engineer behind this. Yeah. Um, and so we created a we created a we call it a matrix, but a matrix from like the perspective of a, a place where a living being is developed and then is being given birth. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but. With building the analogies with the book, with the book, I don't know if you've read Finnegan's Wake. Nobody has really read this thing. I, yeah. I haven't. I'm sorry to say, but <laughs> yeah, but one of the I'm things, curious now. Yeah, no, one, one <laughs> no, what, listen, one of the things we did is that the the server where this thing was hosted was like sending you a weekly email with a couple of pages. Oh, of the nice. Book. Yeah, because the book is. Is it still up? Should I subscribe? No, no, no. <laughs> the, the book was like so hard to read, and it is so hard to read, and it's it's a masterpiece, mm -hmm. and it contains a lot of stories that are interlaced. Okay. And the 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 thing is that, or one of the analyses that has been made of this book is that it contains a lot of stories that are interlaced, and so the things are being back and forth, back and forth between the stories and so on. So these guys they made a lot of video sequences that were like about three minutes long, mm -hmm. and they interlaced them to become eight hours. Wow. So so then you were seeing an. Uh, uh, 
like a, a scene about incest, and then he was jumping into another one about uh, about the uh, insects, mm -hmm. and then was jumping into, into another one about uh, I don't know, yeah, necro <laughs> necrophilia, uh <-huh. laughs> and yeah, this novel is very complex. Mm -hmm. It touches it touches very complex topics fr from uh, using very strong metaphors. Okay, so. Whatever you are reading is not what the author is meaning. Or, or at least that's, yeah, well, that's one of the analysis. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. So what these guys made these movies, and uh, and so we had this idea of what if we, when people are exposed to this, what they we see is the Matrix, which is an egg, and it's in the center of the website, and then you have these thirteen different categories that are made. Like there's insects, and there is. Uh, I don't know, different things that mm -hmm. you can drag and drop, like food and th that oh. represent the categories. And you can drag them. And if they say you drag three items and the thing knows, oh, you drag these three items. And so it randomizes and gives you an experience based oh, on those cool. three topics. Wow. So we made an endless amount of flash interactive movies. Wow. That that could be created out of this randomization. And then you said it's 1999. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, no, it was a tremendous amount of work. Yeah. So, so first it came to, to think about how this could be implemented and making the whole thing and making it work. And then I decided, okay, I'm gonna build the whole front end in JavaScript when JavaScript was kind of on its way out, but it was mm -hmm. the only way of really making it happen. Wow. And then and then the movies were made in JavaScript because then the, the filmmakers that were working in the project could work in cutting and, and making interactions and so on. So we made a lot of like interesting interactive movies. I think it was about a hundred sequences or something. So it's like choose your own adventure for the, exactly. the user. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, it that was the idea. That was the idea. So with these categories, it will create a sequence mm -hmm. of uh, about ten movies, and then inside these movies, there were obviously links that could jump to the following ones or to some other ones and build a tree. So the idea oh. is that every time you will come to this website, you will get a different experience. It's so cool. And I'm like, we could talk about this forever yeah, for hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but basically this this piece is the one that brought me to Sweden. Mm -hmm. Like when when I made this piece, I was then invited to to become a teacher here. Mm -hmm. So that was the that was a thing. And this was during nineteen ninety-nine. I did this thing in the summer and then I moved to Sweden in the year two thousand. Mm -hmm. And then how much later? So then, and Arduino is 2005, so about exactly. five years later. Yeah. So you had had about five years of teaching experience that well, translated yeah, what, into... What happened, yeah, exactly what happened was that, first of all, I had a lot of thoughts about how I had been taught technology. Mm -hmm. Like I was, I remember perfectly, like like uh, there is there is this image that is used every time you learn, for example, computer vision or image treatment, mm -hmm. uh, which is this lady with a hat. Mm -hmm. That thing was taken from a Playboy magazine or something. It's very, it's a very famous. It's, it's used all over the engineering mm -hmm. uh, literature. It's like it's a very classic, classic uh, picture. Uh, so it's like the the head of a lady with a hat, mm -hmm. and um, it's a highly compressed picture. So when you look at it, you can see all of the imperfections and the pixelations and stuff. And and with that, you learn about frequency in the images, uh, how you can make a fast Fourier transfer bidimensional to extract information from it, and so on. And and so I came to the professor and I said, like, look, I understand that this is like very interesting, but at the same time, like it's been used in like books and stuff, but at the same time, you want to analyze the frequency as a concept. Wouldn't it be better if we just had a black and white image with like white bars? Mm -hmm. And then the more the narrower the the lines, the more lines, the higher the frequency, mm -hmm. the wider the lines, the lower the frequency. And then we can see how the spectrum changes with this. Yeah. I mean, he was like this close of calling me stupid. <laughs> and um but I was right. Yeah. And and the point is like uh, to me it was like okay, clearly something doesn't work in education. Like 
Like if you want to explain a concept, you can just say verbatim what comes from the book, or you can just try to figure out a way that it makes it easier to understand the things. Mm-hmm. And and uh, so I had this in my backpack when I came to teach here. And, and so I inherited, because Malmo University was created in 1998, but I came to teach in 2000. So I got these books for teaching Java, and I said, there's, there's no way I can teach these people how to <laughs> program like, with this. this. Yeah. So, so I would I would try to reach these concepts, but by telling the stories differently. I have this collection of collections of overheads on how I was teaching my classes, making my own drawings, and wow. telling you need the story to do differently. With those one day, uh, I, should, I should at some point <laughs> museum, yeah, the but, archive. <laughs> but but yeah, so what? After two and a half years teaching this, I came to the school administ- administration and said, like, okay, guys, like my second job was designing microchips, and I know that in the embedded world. This, the technology is becoming very, very small. And by small, I mean, it will be possible to put microchips inside every physical object. Mm-hmm. So I think that our design students, especially our interaction design students, they should learn about electronics because this is the future, really, how it's gonna go. And and the um, truth is that they had a teacher before me that was teaching something like that, but they were making one single project in the whole class. Mm-hmm. And he was the one making the project for them. Like uh, okay. they will conceptualize it and he will be making mm-hmm. it. But I was more like, no, the students, they really need to learn. What if we transform this physical building class into a class where the students end up building something physical that works with technology? So I designed my own circuit boards for the students to, pre-pro- to reprogram by themselves and so on. We used some basic stamps in the beginning and I was kind of satisfied, but the problem was that I was getting more and more students because the classes were, because the school was very new and the classes were very small, but they were slowly increasing mm-hmm. the amount of students. Yeah. So the budget was escalating very quickly. And also the basic stamps, they were really easy to break. And I knew that electronics are very cheap. Like the components itself themselves are very cheap. So I couldn't understand why the price of the basic stamp was so high. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I have to make my own board. Yeah. And so I started building my own board. And at exactly that time, 2005, some of my work with my students was exhibited at different places. And so the School of Design of Ibrea, the Interaction Design School Ibrea, that was the first big international masters in interaction design, kind of like invited me over for a three or four months residency to help them with a the class. And so I came there and I met my, my compis, my compis. <laughs> That means like friend in, in like children language. Oh, okay. <laughs> like my 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 colleague Massimo. I learned a new word. <laughs> yeah. And um and then um and then for the some rest is history. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, exactly. But for some months I helped him with his classes, but at some point he he asked me like like we had like a very like uh, official interaction, like at some point like like we are kind of became friends and we understood like yeah we want the best for students so mm-hmm. we should try to figure out how to co- collaborate because his residency would come to an end yeah and what can we do beyond that yeah exactly yeah. so so i told him like yeah I'm making my own board and he told me like i'm also making my own board my board looks like this i look at his board and said like well i think your board likes a resistor mm-hmm. yes hand me over your your pcb design i will fix it he sent me the files and i i designed the first arduino board based on his original sketches Wow. And yeah, now the rest of history. So awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. That's the first time I've heard that story officially and it's okay. great to hear it from you. Yeah. Um, and so I'm like just conscientious of the time. I wanna <laughs> don't want to take so much of your time. Um, but 
like I said, we could dive deeper and deeper into all of these <laughs> things, but we'll have to save it. Hopefully, maybe yeah. we can do a part two when you're in the States. I was going to say. <laughs> um, and I'm serious about the the exhibit of your <laughs> um, your overheads. I'm wondering maybe if we could have an exhibit at Design Lab maybe in the future. We can have to see. If I, it. <laughs> I, th I think I still have them. But I mean, there's been a lot of changes in the university. We had to change offices like four mm -hmm. times. And I think I really managed to keep one of my overhead notebooks mm -hmm. like with like hand drawn and so on it would be so interesting see. but mm -hmm. anyways i'm getting ahead of myself here so mm -hmm. we'll just wrap it up with a few kind of rapid fire questions that mm -hmm. we ask um a lot of our guests here um on the show so one is what's something outside of technology that's inspiring you these days <laughs> i mean obviously education is the easy answer right the uh, First of all, for me, society, technology, and economy, they are all together. That's what makes society what it is, is the, the, the bond of these things. Uh, but obviously, um, education is very important. I, th I th think it has a democratization aspect that is very relevant. Um, I recommend everybody to read like Paulo Freire, some of the like current theoret theoreticians around education. They think Freire is getting old fashioned, but as we're advancing in a society with that's again having classes, we had to get rid of social classes, but we are going back to have social classes right now. Uh, I think reading Freddy could be very inspiring. Um, then again, if I have to move from like what I work with, I would say bicycles. Bicycles is my nice. <laughs> like uh, yeah. The thing is that I was cycling a lot as a as a teenager and in my twenties. Mm -hmm. When I moved to Sweden, funny enough, uh, the city is so small that I decided I can walk everywhere. So I didn't cycle for quite a while. Oh, interesting. And then a couple of years ago, I got my partner and my kid new bikes. And I realized I had this really trashy bike to go shopping, basically, just to carry all of the weight of the... Yeah. And I thought like, I should get myself a, myself a bike. I'm yeah. over 40 I'm now. I deserve <laughs> I it. I deserve a bike. I love that. And I, I relearned bike mechanics. So now I can, I can officially say that since actually... A month ago, I can, I have fixed every single part of a modern uh, gravel bike. Nice, yeah. that's awesome. All the way to the bottom brackets, uh, uh, ball bearings. So I've I fixed everything. So yeah, I fell in love with bikes again, and I and I think it's very interesting because there is a big history behind them. Uh, obviously, it's a very sustainable way of transportation. Anybody can fix them. Um, you can have more than one and don't feel bad about it. You know? mm -hmm. So I have five. <laughs> <laughs> and you're going to get 17, right? We talked about this yesterday, the auction. Yeah, well, <laughs> no, I want to go for this auction. I, I, I'm five, all... soon to be, what would it be? 22? <laughs> you, know, not, you know, when people when people like get older, I, I don't drink alcohol, I'm straight edge, but mm -hmm. let's say when people get older, um, they try to drink better wine. Mm -hmm. So as I grow as I grow older, I will try to have better bikes. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so I will I will prioritize quality versus quantity. Nice, nice. There you go. That I love it. <laughs> and last but not least, um, what is on your personal bill of materials? <sighs> I mean, besides all a of bike. The, I was gonna say besides <laughs> all of the tools for the bike. Yes, the bike and the tools. For yeah. No, actually, I was gonna talk more about bikes. I will I will cut the bikes things there. <laughs> no, but something I I carry with me at all times. Uh, like I managed to, since, since I started running Linux about 20 years ago, I, I've seen how I can run my computers for a longer time than anybody else. Like my, my current laptop is about seven years old and I'm really proud. 
um, the battery is kind of dead, but still, <laughs> you know, I can continue working with it. The same mm -hmm. operating system, um, it's great with memory, you know, SSD drive and everything. So, but is is the accessories I have around it? Like, uh, like um, I have two sets of headphones because uh, sometimes I, I mean I need to be in calls all the time. So I have uh, some of these headphones that uh, were with with bone conduction, mm -hmm. so I can wear them and I can keep on talking and they don't look too tacky. Nice. Uh, yes, I got yes. some of those for swimming. Yeah. For um, being able to listen to music <laughs> underwater, and it was so funny because. I remembered when I was like a kid on the swim mm. team, I always wished I could play music. And it's mm. one of those things, you ever have technology where you're like, whoa, I'm living the dream, you know? <laughs> like I have never imagined this would be possible. And yeah, now yeah. I have headphones underwater. That, that's exactly the thing. Like that's it. When I, when I was riding bikes, when I was a teenager, we were doing like the equivalent to enduro today, like downhill, mm -hmm. crazy, no brakes. Like the rule was not- <laughs> Hands in the air. <laughs> yeah, no, that, not so bad, but <laughs> but it, was, it wasn't was very uncommon to arrive home with like either half your body covering oh, mud man. or like blood somewhere. Oh, no. <laughs> but but um, what I really missed was like listening to music. We, we would watch these music videos where we were skating or mm -hmm. doing like crazy sports and had music. It was like, fuck, it has to be great to be cycling yeah. like downhill with this music. Yeah. What I can tell you is, is true. It's true. <laughs> like, like, it is awesome. Yeah, yeah. Like, the, the, other thing in, the other thing in my in my bill of materials actually is a playlist. Mm. I have a playlist that where every song goes over 120 BPMs. Wow. So when I'm cycling, if I if I want to push it, I put that one on and I go on forever. Nice. So. Do you ever do um, like collect biometric data on yourself as it's happening to see if it makes an impact <sighs> on your I, capabilities? The thing is that well, I I I wear um, I wear a pulse smart meter. Watch. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. It's a smartwatch. Why I call it more smart pulse meter okay. because I I want to just basically basically measure my pulse. Mm -hmm. Um. And uh, I have to say, I have improved my condition. So the moment I realized I improved my condition, I stopped looking at it. Mm -hmm. But I still measure it because I think uh, I think it could become relevant at some point. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't I don't necessarily look at whether music really affects me. <laughs> but but you just know in your heart that it does. Yeah. But you know what? <laughs> just to to close this inter interview in a circle, um, an interaction design. One of the first projects a student proposed many years ago was exactly that. Was exactly the possibility of having a music player. And um, back then, MP3 players were like at the early stages. We we're looking at the classic iPods with the ring and stuff like that, right? Um, so that when you when you were exercising, the music could adjust to your to your heartbeat. Oh wow! So you could either use it to enhance it and and push you further, or to calm you down in case mm -hmm. you were like overdoing it. Uh, and back then, we could only prototype this conceptually, but the interesting thing is that because of Arduino and so on, today we can do this for real. Mm -hmm. Like if we did that prototype today, we could totally make a machine that based on your heartbeat could actually adjust the BPMs of the music. Absolutely. Yeah, so. I actually have a friend from school from that art and tech class <laughs> I was talking about, uh, Lalf. She's um, Turkish and she's now doing, um, she's actually managing a art and technology like uh, venue space in Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. She was doing her master's there, but she does performance pieces. She was on one of our modular manifestation interview episodes, but she does performance pieces using Arduino where she mm -hmm. um, takes uh, her heart rate and she does like a speaking performance and 
she's able to like modulate her heart rate. Like she's practiced how to mm -hmm. speed it up or slow it down with breathing techniques and different things. And then it affects um, basically music that's being mixed. I don't know exactly all the technology <laughs> behind it, but essentially it also makes, you know, a live music show mm. essentially um, as she's doing her performance. And um, yeah, I'll have to show you. I have a picture of her little kit that she does with her, mm. with the Arduino and everything. Um, but I love that you brought it back full circle. Thank you. You're a pro. <laughs> You've definitely done these interviews before. Many a few years, times. many years. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I really appreciate the time today, David. And thank you for your generous hosting of Giovanni mm. and I Year. We're really excited to continue working together in the future. Yep. Thank you so much. That was my discussion with David Cuartillas, engineer, educator, artist, and co-founder of Arduino. We talked about the complexities of open source in the arts, the value of open source electronics as a learning platform, and the founding of Arduino. If you like The Bomb, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow Supply Frame and Hackaday on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Design Lab at Supply Frame Design Lab on Instagram and Twitter. The Bomb is a Supply Frame podcast produced by me, Magenta Strongheart, and Ryan Tillotson. Written by Maggie Bulls and edited by Daniel Ferreira. Theme music is by Anna Hogbin, show art by Thomas Schneider, special thanks to Giovanni Salinas, Bruce Dominguez, Thomas Woodward, Jin Kumar, Jordan Clark, the entire Supply Frame team, and you, our wonderful listeners. I'm your host, Magenta Strongheart. See you next week.